0: Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our gospel for today contains one of Jesus' greatest one-liners. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, this um, little rejoinder has inspired, as you know, an enormous amount of controversy over the centuries. And I'll come back in the second half of the homily today to explore what that might mean. But first, I want to get at another spiritual issue that this story suggests. And to do this, we have to look at the context of Jesus' famous saying. It should be clear by now in the Gospel of Matthew, the section we've been moving through the last several weeks, the Pharisees don't care much for Jesus. And they've been sort of coming after him, and he's been coming back at them. They were advocates of religious rectitude, of an uncompromised living out of the Old Testament laws, especially those dealing with ritual purity. Now, Jesus, without repudiating any of that, represented, however, something different, namely a making plain of the heart of the law, which is living in friendship with God. This relationship that he characterized as the kingdom of God. So we're meant to see in these chapters a sort of a contrast between two visions of religion. Well, as a result, the Pharisees are out to get him. And as the story opens for today, they've concocted a very clever plot. They send their representatives to Jesus, but along with the Herodians, which is to say those Jews supportive of King Herod, the client king of Israel who had been sponsored by the Romans. The Herodians were, if you want, the pro-Roman political establishment. Well, in the presence of these politicos, the Pharisees resolved to ask Jesus about the legitimacy of the census tax paid to the Roman emperor. So, obviously a controversial thing that Jews are being made to pay this tax to the distant emperor of Rome— especially given the fact that lots of Jews were collaborating with this. It was a source of great controversy. But more to it here, it seems to be a perfect trap. For if he says the tax is legitimate, it's okay, well, he'll alienate many of his followers who saw him as advocating the reign of God, advocating a different vision of things, not subservience to Rome. But if he says, no, the temple tax is not legitimate, then the Herodians will hear him and report back to their superiors that he is, in fact, seditious, that he's a dangerous revolutionary. Either way, it seems, they have him. It's clever. You're trying to catch someone, you set them up in a verbal trap, that's what they've done. Well, Jesus, with infinite deafness, evades the horns of the dilemma with his famous comeback. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, I think we're meant to see several things here. First, we're meant to meditate upon the meanness of a lot of religious people. I'm not saying it to be provocative. I just think it's the case. You know, up and down the centuries, people have talked about uh, the special sort of hatred that religious people can muster. The medievals talked about odium theologicum, which is a theological hatred. And they identified it as perhaps the worst species of hatred. You know, we hate for all kinds of reasons, but when you hate for theological reasons, there's a very special intensity. Someone has a different religious opinion than I, and I want, as a consequence, not Simply to convince him otherwise, I want to destroy him. At the limit, this gives rise to September 11th. But in lesser forms, it gives rise to character assassination, cruel words meant to hurt, insinuations designed to derail a career, etc. You know what I'm talking about. The way religious people can sometimes just be at each other's throats in a way that is very cruel. Now, mind you, I'm not blaming the left or the right or the center. I'm blaming everybody. For this sort of thing is rampant in religious circles. Take a look, if you doubt me, at a lot of religious uh, magazines and especially websites today. Ay, ay, ay. Sometimes it's just frightening to look at religious websites and the amount of venom they can generate. And these can be websites you know, where Catholics read other Catholics. But the level of hatred is so intense that it just sort of shocks you. It puts you off. Friends, here's a bottom line principle. Take it to the bank. I have no fear of this being contradicted. You can't serve the God of love by hating people. Period. (laughs) Let me say that again. If you're trying to serve the God of love, and that's the God that we all claim we're trying to serve, you can't do it by hating people. Because in the very act of hating people, setting them up for destruction, trying to trap them with your words, in the very act of doing that, you're undermining the God you're claiming to proclaim. Now, you know, those who have listened to me for a long time know that I'm not namby-pamby when it comes to theology. You can argue a position. Nothing world wrong with that. You can find someone to be mistaken. Nothing wrong with that. And you can point it out. That's perfectly valid. I like good theological arguments. I like having good religious arguments. I don't think we're all deep down saying the same thing. I mean, you know that. You've heard me for a long time. But you can't hate. Otherwise, you're undermining the very message you're trying to propagate. See, this is the problem with the uh, Pharisees. As they set this thing up, it's done as an act of hatred. They're trying to destroy him. Notice, too, in that story begins, they're trying to flatter him. Oh, you know, Jesus, we so admire you because you're you know, a man of great honesty and truth. Come on. From the beginning, they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to uh, destroy him. See, this is precisely why... Jesus refuses to cooperate with this question of the Pharisees. He sees through it. He knows this is not an honest theological question, and so he does not play the game. See, that's part of the, of the um, strategy here in the famous comeback, is he's refusing to situate himself on the horns of this dilemma. He sees through their purpose and their intention. I might suggest to you, friends, it's not a bad strategy when you're up against religious haters. There are people that want to draw you into their games, into their strategies. They want you to answer in kind. Because when you do, you justify them in their original hatred. So it's not a bad strategy when you have seen through somebody's uh, intention simply not to cooperate with them. Now, I know it's difficult. They're trying to bait you. They're trying to draw you into the, uh, the battle. Resist them is not a bad strategy. Okay, so there's the first thing I think we're meant to see here is um, this fact of religious hatred and how perhaps best to defuse it. But then there is the answer that Jesus gives, which does have a more substantive um, purpose. This wonderfully clever response, which has inspired so much discussion ever since. First notice, friends, how important it is that Jesus gives a both-and response to a question that was forcing him into an either-or. Do you pay the temple tax or not? It's one or the other. It's either-or. Well, see, here's the thing. Sometimes questions really are either-or. Are there 20 people in this room or not? Well, that's pretty straightforward. Did you finish your homework or not? There's a yes or no answer to that. Sometimes there are questions like this even in the spiritual order. Is God absolute in your life or not? Is Jesus your ultimate concern or something else? Those are the bracing either ors that do emerge in theological conversation and in the spiritual order. But, more often than not, spiritual and theological questions invite a both-and answer. Precisely because, very often in the spiritual order, things are just not so simple. One of those areas is the relation between the church and the state. Or between religion and politics. I mean, heck, we fight about it to the present day. We've been fighting about it for all the centuries of the church's life. So, Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, what he's making clear here at first is there is a legitimate distinction between the spiritual and the temporal. Governors and governments have their own legitimate sphere of influence and operation. They legitimately raise taxes, make laws, order the society. Neither Pharisees in ancient times nor priests in the present day should be government officials. You know, I'll pause here to reflect a little bit on Pope Benedict's recent talk he gave in Germany. He said, Christianity, at its best, has never derived the particulars of political law from the data of revelation. Interesting observation, isn't it? Unlike other religions, think of Sharia law in Islam that does just that. It takes very definite political and legal directives from the data of revelation. Christianity, he said, relied rather on the practice of Roman law and on the reflection of Greek philosophy. What it allowed for, in short, was, to some degree, the legitimate, independent functioning of government apart from the church. At its best, at its best, Catholicism never moved toward a theocracy, where popes and bishops were the political leaders of Europe. Now, certainly popes and kings and emperors battled and there were struggles over the centuries, but at its best, the Catholic tradition never moved in the direction of theocracy. John Paul II, by the way, saw this with very uh, great clarity. It's why he directed that no priest should serve formally in government. Remember that way back in the 1980s, he determined that, that priests should just not be directly involved in the uh, government of the society. I mean, as a priest, I shouldn't um, enter Congress and start formulating uh, the details of tax law. I shouldn't be negotiating treaties in the Senate. That's one side of it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There is a legitimate distinction. But now, think about this as I close. In the ultimate scheme of things, everything belongs to God, since God is the creator of all. Everything belongs to God, including Caesar. See, what does that mean? It means that everything, including this legitimately independent political operation, is finally under the moral and spiritual aegis of God. That's why the same John Paul II who said priests shouldn't be directly involved in government also spoke with such eloquence and power against the communist regime in his homeland. That's something of the subtle, nuanced, complex answer to this question that Jesus gives, not an either-or, but a rather eloquent and fascinating both-and. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And may God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.